Hey guys, if you like this podcast, and I'm assuming you do because you're listening to it right now, you can help me keep making it. First of all, you can spread the word, especially on Tumblr, reblog stuff when I post it, talk about the podcast on your own blog if you like it. Secondly, if you want to support it in a more material way, you can go to our website at keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com. There is a picture of a tip jar on the front page, takes you to PayPal, you can toss a couple of bucks in my hat there, or you can go to my Patreon, which is linked at the top of my Tumblr at dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. You make a small monthly donation, which is absolutely fantastic, and thank you for listening to this, and listening in general, and I love you so much, and you're wonderful, and thank you. Hello, Bethel fandom. Well, I woke up this morning and we're all still here, so there's that. I I hope you all are doing okay today. Clearly this is a very difficult day for most of us, I'm guessing, given what I know about the people who tend to be the listeners of this podcast. But, you know, you gotta pick yourself up, somehow. Keep doing things. I mean, in in all seriousness here, this is not Bethel-related, but you know what? We're a community, and we all share a lot of things in common, I think, aside from just this ship, so I'm gonna go ahead and, and get into this a little bit anyway before I do the actual fic. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of stuff from people who say that they're feeling especially helpless or powerless or like, you know, they just, they kind of can't do anything. That, that what happened happened. They did whatever they could. They feel like they did their best, whether it was campaigning or voting or, or you know, stuffing envelopes or talking to friends or, you know, sharing things on social media, just anything that they could do, they felt like they could do. And it wasn't enough and it didn't work. And, uh, the country is worse than we thought it was. I mean, I think we all knew it was bad, but it's much worse than than I think any of us wanted to imagine. And I think that a lot of us are also feeling like, you know, there's there's really no direction at this point. This one of the things that that pundits have been saying over and over again that they actually have been getting right, <laughs> among other very very few things, is that this is completely uncharted territory. Like, we don't know where we go from here. We have no idea what's going to happen now. This is unprecedented. We have in office a man who is uniquely unqualified for this job. He doesn't know the first thing about government. He doesn't know the first thing about policy. He is not a thoughtful man. I don't want to say he's not a smart man because I have no idea, but he is not a thoughtful man. He is not a conscientious or a careful man. And he is not a man who appears to be particularly long on empathy. And you need all of those things to be an effective leader. And he doesn't have any of them. Sorry, that's my cat eating. So I think that we have a lot of reasons to feel a great deal of anxiety. That's not very comforting, I know, but I, you know what, I think we need to be feeling this stuff. I think that we need to be afraid. Uh, I think that we need to feel like we're on the edge of something potentially very bad. And the reason why I think that we need to be feeling that and we need to embrace that feeling is that we're not actually powerless. 
You know, we're not helpless. And that doesn't just mean that we can go out and vote in the midterm elections, which, by the way, you absolutely should fucking do. In some ways, the midterms are even more important than the presidential elections. The midterms are where we have a chance to affect Congress. And, and what happened to Congress in the, this election is almost as important as what happened with the presidency. And it wasn't good. It didn't go our way. Again, assuming that we're all kind of of the same political motivation, which I think is a safe assumption. If you're a Trump supporter, by the way, don't fucking listen to this go away. I don't want you enjoying this content that I'm producing. Fuck you. Uh, but it's, we do have a chance to do something. We really do. And we, it's not even necessarily about voting. I mean, go out into your community and, and, and find something that you can do that, that helps. Uh, you know, donate to charities, donate to things like Planned Parenthood, donate to things like Habitat for Humanity, uh, donate to things like the ACLU, because God knows if Trump does what he wants to do with the press, we are going to need American civil liberties. Uh, like, whoa. And, and anything else that, that promotes, you know, freedom of institutions like the press and supports people who are working for that in Washington and outside of Washington. Do things just like volunteering at your local homeless shelter. One of the things I did when I got up this morning was I did a you know, Google search and was like, okay, in my neighborhood, where is reasonable proximity for shelters and, and shelter, you know, homeless shelters and, and shelters for, for families and battered women where I might be able to do some kind of volunteer work? And I found a couple of possible places. I've just got to see about you know, what's involved in getting over there. But do something. Don't just sit on your ass. Do something, take care of each other, take care of yourselves, protect each other, because people are going to need protection and we cannot count on authorities and people in power to protect us, clearly not. And get ready for four years from now, because we need to come back and we need to come back strong. And you know what? We need to make these fuckers pay. You need to be thinking about it in those terms. In four years, revenge. If that's what you need to motivate you. In four years, we jump on these assholes and we show them what for. So there's that. You're not powerless. You're not helpless. You need to seize what power you have and you need to use it as effectively as you can. And you need to do it in coalition with everybody else. You need to be, if you're an ally, you need to find out how you can be the most effective possible ally. You need to listen to the people who have things to tell you. And, you know, if, if you're not an ally, if you're actually in a position of deep marginalization, uh, just, you know, I'm a queer person, I'm non-binary, but I'm also white, and, you know, most of the time I present as cisgender for a variety of reasons, so, you know, there's, there's that. I have a lot of privilege that I'm carrying around with me, too, and I really will try to stand with other people and support other people and lift up other people's voices as much as I possibly can and, and just do whatever it is that I can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Even though it probably will. Yeah, it's going to be a rough four years. But you know what? We'll make it through because we have each other. And really, at the end of the day, that's all you need. If you have each other, that's all you need. And I know that this fandom, for all of its problems and for all of its fractiousness, is a close-knit community. And for the most part, we do have each other's backs. And let's use that close-knit nature. And let's use the friendships that we have and the friendships that we've built and, and the relationships that mean so much to us. Let's use those for more than just fandom. 
All right, let's use those as, as bases of organization because they really can be those things. What that ends up looking like, I don't know, but let's be on the lookout for ways in which we can do that. Let's get to work. It's okay to be depressed. When I'm done recording uh, this particular section for the podcast, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna buy a fucking cake and it's raining really hard right now. So I'm gonna go, I'm going to get wet because I don't actually think I have an umbrella, but you know what? I want cake that much need it. It's part of my self-care, but it's also fuel for my fighting. Cake-fueled fighting. Best kind. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna drink some water and I'm gonna stop babbling depressedly at you. So, today, in, in happier news, uh, sorta. One of the reasons why I decided I wanted to go ahead and record today, I mean, I was gonna record in the next week or so, but one of the reasons why I really wanted to go ahead and do the next episode in our reading series today is because I think that we all sort of need it, and I definitely needed the distraction. And recording stuff makes me happy. So we're continuing with the Keep Singing reading series. This is part three. And what that means is that I'm gonna be reading chapter three of Vampire Cats Burn, which I've been enjoying very much been loving it up through two. Thing about uh, chapter three, I'm reading it. I'm reading it completely cold here. I have not read it. Every word I read from when I start reading is going to be new to me. So you are literally hearing me read it for the first time for myself, which I think is kind of exciting. Uh, which means I might periodically like do personal interjections. I have no idea, but uh, this is sort of, this is uncharted territory for me too. It's just fun uncharted territory. And then I'm going to do chapter three of Safe Up Here With You, which is again, of course, me. Now, uh, the thing about these chapters is that they're both pretty long and because they're so lengthy, I'm gonna go ahead and forego the little one shot that I usually try to add as the stinger at the end of these. Uh, I think that, that with these two chapters, that's more than enough content. Plus, to be honest, it's it's less for me to produce in terms of complexity, although it's still quite a lot for me to produce in terms of editing. So that's how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it then. This is chapter three of The Vampire Cat's Burn. Burn, by the Vampire Cat. Chapter 3, Genesis. He doesn't feel her slip out of his arms, doesn't feel her go. Later he wonders how he missed it, how someone who sleeps as lightly as she does didn't notice her up and leave. He remembers how she kissed him, though, how she'd fitted to his body so perfectly, even though she's so small and he's clumsy and crude and all thumbs. He remembers how he'd kissed her mouth, her cheek, how his lips traveled down her neck, how he could taste the dirt, the sweat of her under his tongue. But he also remembers the voices in his head, how they raged and laughed, a maddening cacophony that drowned out everything, making Beth and her sweet kisses and soft skin into a minefield of twisted emotions and blackened morality under his hands. They'd been fine to start off with. Usually the voices came and went, depending on the mood, or as Joe would have said, the general attitude of the day. Always a little crazy. Some recognizable like his ma and old man, Grandma Leela. Others less distinct, 
an amalgamation of school bullies, pretty girls, and redneck douchebags he used to know. He'd been teased and tormented long enough to know how to ignore them. And it wasn't like he actually believed he had people living in his head. In the cold light of day, he knew that it was him. All his demons, all his fears, all his insecurities. All him. But there was a wild card. Isn't there always? Because just when he managed to drown them out, just when he'd shut them up long enough to think, to breathe, to feel, just when he thought he was out of the woods, and maybe, just maybe, he could go on kissing Beth for a little longer, a few seconds maybe, an hour, the next century would do as well. He ain't fussy. That was when the big guns came out. Merle. Always fucking Merle. His crazy-ass brother's voice lived in his head now, too. Had since the day he'd found him turned, gorging on the guts of the dead. Had long before that, too, if he was brutally honest with himself. But he wasn't. And he liked that just fine that way, thank you very much. Because as much as he wanted, no, needed, to deny it, one way or another Merle was his personal reckoning, the boogeyman hiding in the closet just when the movie should be over. The problem was it was Merle, not an unfriendly monster, not one that was likely to bite or claw or drag you back under the bed, leaving nothing but some bloodied fingernail marks on the floor. No, he was subtler than that, the devil on your shoulder, the one who sucked you in, who seduced you to come over to the dark side, who promised a twisted salvation where you could have peace, where you could revel in the depravity. The one that told you fucking Beth Green was the best idea ever, and exactly what you should do. Which automatically made it into the last thing you should do. It was a fine line to walk, and Daryl often found himself stumbling. Didn't want to be his brother, but making every moral question into a case of what would Merle do made it hard to see things clearly, because Merle would have fucked Beth. There and then, hard and fast, swift and sure, wouldn't have thought twice about it. And if he would have done it, it was probably a bad idea. A very bad idea. He thinks of his ma. He shouldn't, but he does. And it bothers him that she's been popping up in his mind so often. She once told him something about fighting off monsters and not becoming one yourself. Also something about an abyss, but he can't really remember all too well. He hated those days when she started quoting books and famous people and talking about the world outside of the Dixon trailer. Hated them because it always jolted him, threw him off when he remembered that his ma hadn't always been like this. Hadn't always been a shadow. Hadn't always been dead inside. That she had a chance at a different life, and bad choices and worse circumstances had taken all that away from her. Taken it and thrown it into that abyss of cigarettes and booze and pills. There was a very clever man that said it, Daryl. The stuff about monsters. Cleverer than me, she said. Much cleverer than your dad. But not cleverer than you, my boy. Nowhere near. His ma's grasp on reality had always been questionable. Very questionable. He recalls the day perfectly. Her bruised arms, the scratches on her cheek. His old man snoring away a drunken stupor on the couch. He'd been so angry, so enraged when he saw her battered shoulders that his ten-year-old self hadn't stopped to think. Her bruises were all there was. They filled his entire world with their sickly purple hue, 
and he'd run to the kitchen drawer, pulled out the sharpest knife he could find. Now that he thinks on it, the knife probably wasn't that sharp. Nothing in the Dixon household actually worked, and was halfway across the room before his ma grabbed him, pulled him to her breast, and rocked him while he cried against her stained nightgown that reeked of cigarettes and sweat. And that's when she told him, when she whispered to him that he had to be the one good thing she'd done in the world. Told him it was too late for her, for Merle, but maybe it wasn't too late for him. And she couldn't, she wouldn't, let her little boy, her sweet son, turn into a monster. She just wouldn't. She would keep him pure. Flawless. Even then he knew she was talking trash. One too many sleeping pills, mixed with one too many painkillers, mixed with one too many bottles of Jim Beam. She could think he was different, all she wanted, but this was him. This was Daryl Dixon. He had Dixon blood. Tainted Dixon blood. It was as much a part of him as breathing. The only difference between him and Merle, him and his father, was a few years. A decade or two down the line, and that's where he'd be. On the couch, sleeping off a high. Maybe even a battered woman crying over him, like his ma was now. But she'd asked him to promise her he wouldn't give in. Wouldn't give up his goodness, and he said yes to stop her crying, even though he didn't really believe it. Couldn't really believe it. It was like telling him to become president or find a cure for cancer. Telling him he'd be a millionaire and stop human trafficking. But she'd asked him to promise her he wouldn't give in, wouldn't give up his goodness, and he'd said yes to stop her crying, even though he didn't really believe it. Couldn't really believe it. It was like telling him to become president or find a cure for cancer. Telling him he'd be a millionaire and stop human trafficking while saving stray dogs off the street in his spare time. Impossible nonsense. Impossible. Nonsense. But the truth of it was he tried. Every goddamn day he tried. He wasn't Merle. If nothing else good came out of the last two or three years, it was that. But every now and then, when he felt his worst, when it seemed like the world was shitting on his head just because it could, and that he was cursed, he felt like he was being pulled into that abyss. And he was going to take everything close to him along for the ride. Everything. Like Beth Green. Beth Green had kissed him, slipped under the blanket with him, and molded herself around him, pulling him to her. Beth Green had let him kiss her, let him put his clumsy hands on her, who chased most of the voices away with the sweetness of her mouth, the softness of her body. He wonders now if she'd been as buzzed as he was, if she also felt like her heart was going to jump out of her chest, even if the smallest sliver of her was scared of rejection. Beth wasn't the type of girl who got rejected. Since when did the fucking prom queen get turned down by the likes of, well, him? He thinks briefly of Junie Day, prom queen circa 1991, when he would have graduated if he had graduated. Thinks of her red hair and her green eyes, and how they'd been friends once upon a time, before her family suddenly came into a lot of money. A lot of money. And they moved out of the trailer park and at Roswell, and suddenly Daryl Dixon wasn't good enough to lick her boots. He's mostly over it now. Mostly. Couldn't blame the girl, not really. If he'd had the opportunity to leave, he would have, but he liked to think he wouldn't have left everyone else behind. Liked to think that if he saw Junie Day and her family out one day, he'd have stopped to say hi, instead of pretending he didn't know them, like Junie did that day him and Merle had seen her in the Atlanta City Center, looking like she'd just stepped out of the pages of a fashion catalog. He wonders where Junie is now. Last time he heard of her was a decade ago, 
and she was getting married to some fancy-pants lawyer. He wonders if she made it out before the virus hit, if she found some kind of safe zone, or if she's holed up in a house somewhere like this one, waiting for it all to be over. Of course, there's always the possibility that she's a geek, a biter, a walker. He shakes his head. No, he hopes Judy made it. Despite how she treated him, despite her unkind words the last time they spoke, when she told him that redneck trash was her past now, and how sick she was of him pining after her like a lost puppy. Merle had laughed when he heard. Thought it was hilarious. Told him even white trash like the days have standards, don't want nothing to do with the Dixons. Don't want Daryl Dixon sniffing around their redneck princess. Asked him how he could have been so fucking stupid as to think Junie Day, even at her worst when she was begging stale bread off his ma while his old man was out, would ever have looked at him twice. Aim high, he said sarcastically before laughing hysterically again. Aim as fucking high as you can, brother. Ain't no way that could ever work out badly for you. And that's what he heard Merle say when the rest of the voices were drowned out. Aim high. Aim as fucking high as you can, brother. Sure, Dixons don't get the homecoming queen. They don't get the prettiest girl in the room. It's all just a big joke. So if this cute little piece of ass is giving it away for free, ain't no reason to say no. Ain't no reason not to make her beg for it. Give it to her, brother. Give it to her hard. Give it to her good. That's what he'd heard when he'd kissed her before they slept. When he'd woken up and invited her back under the blanket. When he moved his lips to her smooth neck. It was all there. That brash laugh, a leer so loud he could almost hear it. And he had to stop. Even though he really didn't want to. Even though he didn't think she wanted him to. Even though he felt like he was dying when he moved off her, and locking his arms around her was all he could do not to touch the rest of her. Not to even think of putting his hands on her skin, her flesh, those meager curves that were impossible not to notice. She'd been sweet, though, snuggling against him, and soon there was just white noise in his head, nothing serious, nothing he couldn't handle. He didn't know what to say, so he just held her. Held her while he could still taste her on his tongue, while she ran gentle fingers through his hair, as the sweaty smell of her, of them, filled him. And for the first time in weeks, for the first time since the funeral home, he felt himself relax. Maybe a little too well. Because he fell asleep again, and when he woke up, she was gone. Beth? He calls as he shifts on the couch. His shoulder jars as he sits up, and it's like an alarm for every other bruise, muscle and scab, to wake up and stand to attention. He winces, closing his eyes briefly against the pain, putting a hand to his belly. They got him better than he thought. Much better, actually. He thinks of looking in the mirror, and then remembers just how much the jagged image freaked Beth out, and decides against it. Won't be much to see. Just an asshole redneck looking like he'd been in a bar fight. It was a reflection he'd seen often enough before anyway. Didn't need no reminders. He calls her name again as he pulls his boots on, but the house is silent. And he starts to worry a little. He's come down from the adrenaline high. He's not thinking about hell and angels and purgatory and infernos and shit. It takes him a second to comprehend exactly how out of his mind he had been the previous night, exactly how far into crazy town he'd gone. Briefly, he wonders how far into crazy town she'd gone, and if that's why she kissed him. But now it's better. He knows he's not dreaming. Well, at least as much as anyone ever knows they ain't dreaming. 
Yeah, yeah, he's done the whole what if I'm in a coma, this is just a long, extended little mind adventure before I check out. If it is, he wishes the doctor would change his meds because it's been one hell of a trip and he could easily do with a change to kittens and rainbows for the rest of his life. But he knows this is as real as he's going to get for now. And he knows Beth is here somewhere, could still smell her on his hands, wishes he could still have her taste in his mouth. Standing brings a whole new level of pain. His muscles bunch and cramp, his legs buckle even though they feel like they're in a vice, and he has to grab onto the couch for a moment to stop himself falling over. His shoulder feels like a demon from that ninth circle he was so worried about, has managed to claw its way into his flesh and follow him out of hell as his own little personal reminder of just how fucking close they came. How fucking close. Funny what fear can do to you, how it can push you, how it can override basic needs, basic human endurance, and keep you moving through it. He's still in shock, though. The previous night and all its horrors still lurk close to the surface, and no amount of endorphin-fueled emotion will quiet them. He needs time, that's all. Time with her. Time to reflect, as Joe said. Time to get used to the idea of not being alone, and having someone he can trust nearby. Another groan as he takes the crossbow and opens the front door, walks down the steps. Stands in the rain outside, blinking stupidly in the bad light. The weather is fucked up, makes no sense to him anymore. But then again, a little bit of wacky weather is nothing compared to the fact that dead people are walking around. Yeah, when you think about it that way, it puts a lot of things into perspective. He scans the drive, noticing again how identical the houses all are, save for different color flower boxes outside each. The two walkers he killed from the previous day are still lying next to the gate, but there's another one now. A middle-aged man, dressed in a suit, lying near the car. He knows he didn't kill that one, and he starts to panic. His empty stomach lurches. They really should have cleared this place out better. They really had been idiots. Wild, high idiots thinking themselves untouchable in a world like this. Beth, he calls. Beth? It's cold. Really fucking cold all of a sudden. She couldn't have gone far. Ain't no way she would have just run off on him. Run off without him. Yeah, like Junie Day. That was Merle's voice. His stupid-ass voice. He calls again, trying to keep the panic at bay, telling himself she's fine. She hasn't disappeared. Wouldn't kill you to have a little faith. But he's worried. Really fucking worried, because he knows his mind ain't right, and he knows he's not all that sharp right now, and he doesn't think he can take another round of God and his cosmic pranks he likes to play on Daryl Dixon for shits and giggles. Fuck Beth, he calls. You hear, girl? Silence. Silence except for the pitter-patter of rain, the hush of the wind. This ain't right, he tells himself. This just ain't right. He did this once before. Ran all night for her before collapsing on the side of the tracks. But this time he has nothing. Nowhere to go. Nothing to follow. He shouts again, no longer caring if there's anyone, walker or not, to hear. And just when he thinks that's it and he's about to fall down in the rain, only to look up and see Joe and Len admiring his crossbow, the door of the house next door opens, and she's there. Wrapped in a short blue robe, hair wet, droplets of icy water falling off her skin. He blinks. She grins. He tries to grin back, but his heart doesn't stop its rapid-fire thumping, and for a second he thinks he's going nuts and this is Merle in the woods all over again. 
Come on, she says. It's freezing out here. His voice is gone, so he does what she says because it's easier than trying to explain anything, or scold her for running off, or, hell, confess his love. Yeah, he doesn't know where that last one came from, except, you know, he does. I thought whoever lived here had moved, she says, indicating the other house, and he's starting to think she's real again. This place has much more stuff. He's not sure what counts as stuff, but she's fine, and that right there is a win. That robe, though, he's not sure if that's a win, or a one-way ticket to hell, and his gut clenches a little. The house is identical to the last one. Kitchen, lounge, and dining room downstairs, and three bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs. But it's furnished in a kind of retro 1970s style that includes a wall mirror of spirographs next to pinups of girls in poodle skirts ironing and serving beer and playing with cats. If there's a 70s version of a dude bro, he lived here once upon a time. He can't quite figure it out, but he's really never understood people with money. He looks at the pictures on the mantel above a dusty fireplace. A middle-aged couple. He has a ponytail and a huge handlebar mustache while she is pretty and heavily made up with big 80s hair. They're on a boat, obviously somewhere on a holiday, drinking rum. A photo from before, a happier time. He wonders why they moved on from here, until he sees another photo of a young woman, a carbon copy of both of them wearing a Mercer University Bears jersey, and it all falls into place. There might be no bodies here, no walkers, but suddenly the house reeks of death. He knows she's watching him as he takes it all in, as he looks around at the over-the-top furnishing, the lava lamps, the retro brown and yellow striped couch, as his gaze travels to the kitchen and the avocado green grocery cupboards in it, and he's acutely aware that she's standing very close, and that her robe is very short. He clears his throat and looks at her. Do you have a bath? he asks, and it's stupid, irrelevant, and totally not what he wanted to say, because what the hell do you say now, the morning after, the night before? She grins again. They have a well point. Water's cold and there's no pressure, but it's water. And it's clean. So much for his brilliant ice cream tub plan. And they have a gas stove, she continues. With gas? All these places? He asks, and she shrugs. I only looked at this one. Wonder why that other one was such a dump. She shrugs again. He humps. It feels weird, jangly. She's smiling and upbeat, and he thinks he should say something, anything. But she's in that little blue robe, and he doesn't want to look at her too long. There was a walker outside, he says, because he can't think of anything else, and his mind is wandering to very dark places as he remembers her lips on his and the feel of her skin under his hands. Oh, she doesn't seem worried. I killed it earlier. It must have been behind the houses when we arrived last night. Yeah, well, we'll need to clear this place good and proper. She nods and looks a lot less serious than she should. I found some food here, some tin peaches and pie apples, and a can of condensed milk. Make it sick, he says, but his stomach rumbles loudly, and he goes into the kitchen to where she's laid the cans out on the counter, picking them up, pretending to read the labels. Your shoulder okay? she asks from the doorway, and he makes a noise that means yes and stop fussing at the same time. He chances a peek at her, and the little robe that barely touches her thighs makes his breath hitch. 
He looks away when she catches his gaze. It's okay, Daryl, she says, and it feels like she's humoring him, and he's embarrassed. He makes that noise again and takes a swig of the condensed milk directly from the tin, messing down his front, standing over the blood already there. It's ridiculously sweet, like drinking melted sugar, and his empty stomach lurches. She frowns, and it's the same look she gave him at the funeral home. Gross! And because he doesn't know what else to do, he grins at her. She rolls her eyes, and he's about to chuckle when she rubs her shoulder, the robe falling open slightly. There are dark bruises against her pale skin, so dark that he doesn't understand how he didn't see them last night, when all she wore was his vest. Maybe he was still too buzzed, maybe he was still too focused on the fact that she was here and alive, and it was a miracle the likes of which no one in the Dixon family has ever seen before, nor likely would see again. But there they are, big and black and blue, a line of them running across her shoulder and into her hairline. His gaze drops to her arm. Len's handprint stands out raw and red above her elbow, another one on her wrist. He hates it. It makes him think of his ma, again, and he really doesn't want to keep thinking about his ma, and how her shoulders and arms were always covered in purple bruises. His old man was nothing if not strategic, precise, never bruised where you couldn't cover up, which was why he'd see his ma in turtleneck jumpers in the middle of the Georgia summer. She claimed she was just a cold person. Fact was, she was just a beat person, a punching bag. Old man Dixon was very clever, knew where the pressure points were, knew how to hit where it did the most damage. And sometimes, when he was looking for a fight, when he was so drunk and so high, he'd prepare beforehand. It was like watching a fucking horror movie unfold in front of him. It would always start slow, slow and easy. The old man would be in a good mood, riding out his high, humming to himself under his breath, reading the papers, smoking a cigarette. Hey, Daryl, pass me that soap. That was when he knew. It was always the goddamn soap. Daddy Dixon was completely on board with the old soap and a sock cliché. Loved it like he loved his jack, like he loved his whores, like he loved jerking off to violent porn and kicking the neighbor's dog when they weren't looking. Thing was, Daddy Dixon was also very clever. Daryl had never been his favorite. He'd always called him a mama's boy, a sissy, crying pansy-ass little bitch. Always felt Daryl was too sensitive, too nervous. Stupid fucking thing was it was his old man that put him on edge, his old man that made him fearful and timid. And his old man's answer? Beat the fear out of him. As if that made sense. Fact was, it didn't beat the fear out of him. It beat it into him, time and time again. All that taught him was to hide it. Be the first to lash out, rather than the one to be lashed at. But the soap. The soap was always the easiest way to turn Daryl into the exact jangle of nerves, crying little bitch at his father said he was, because the soap in his young child mind made him complicit in whatever was going to happen. He helped create the weapon that was used to beat his mother. And that was something Daryl Dixon carried around with him that he'd never told anyone in his life. Didn't think he ever would, because once he started thinking about it, the guilt was too much, too crippling. In moments of clarity, he knew that his feelings were unfounded, that he'd been a kid and his father hadn't needed an excuse to give him a beating, so defying a simple request like, pass the soap, even though it was loaded with everything that made life in the Dixon home a living hell, would be enough to stop him sitting for days. But that didn't change the fact that when he passed the soap, 
Always new bar, Daryl. We don't want the one that's already been in the shower. It felt like putting a gun in his father's hands and aiming it for him. The worst bit, though, well, other than the inevitable beating that would follow when he'd go and huddle in his cupboard, a pillow over his ears, was the half-smile and the conspiratorial wink his father would give him as that bar of antibacterial soap passed between them. Sometimes, if he was feeling extra sadistic, he'd hold the sock open, make Daryl push the soap inside. To this day, he can't stand to look at Dial in the supermarket, can't stand anything that smells even close to it. Because he doesn't see soap. He sees guilt. He sees bruises. Bruises like Beth has all over her arms and neck, and it makes him just a little bit crazier than before. She's okay, though. He thinks, at least. She has to be. He has to tell himself she is, or he might just lose all his shit, and then she won't be okay again. What? she asks. He doesn't miss how her breath hitches as he tugs at the collar of her robe, nor how her skin prickles as he lays his fingers on her shoulder, just beneath the blackest of the bruises. You okay? he asks. She nods. It's just bruises, Daryl. They'll heal. He doesn't like that phrasing. Sounds too much like something his ma would have said. He clears his throat, briefly looks into her eyes, big and beautiful and cobalt blue. I want to kill him for you again, he says. Voice low, gruff, the words indistinct, like he's telling her a huge secret. He's dead, she says, reaching for his free hand with her own and twining his fingers through hers. He nods, thumb tracing the edge of the marks. Her skin is soft, softer than last night, and suddenly he wants to put his mouth to it. Plant a chain of healing kisses over those brazen bruises, those obscene reminders. He wants to see them disappear like butterflies under his lips, see her skin go pale under his hands. He wishes he had the power to make it all go away, to change everything that's happened to her, to them. Her hand closes around his wrist, and he looks away from her shoulder, her marks, her scars, to her face where her lips are slightly parted, and her eyes are almost luminous. She says his name and steps toward him as his hand slides up the back of her neck, for her skin is cold and damp from her hair. He wants to kiss her again, like he did last night. Wants to feel her lips against his, her tongue in his mouth. Even though he knows it's all kinds of wrong. He's okay with being wrong. But then she falters. A brief look to the side, a small bite on her bottom lip. And then she slips her arms around him, under his jacket, against his dirty shirt, fitting her head to his shoulder. He takes a moment with the disappointment before holding her to him, pressing her to his chest, breathing in that clean scent that's anything but dial, hands splayed on her back. She's tiny, tiny and perfect. Even though she's not wearing much, she warms him, and he knows he could stand like this forever and that he could even find that latent religion hidden inside his genes and start thanking a higher power for every second he gets to stay. I missed you so much, Daryl Dixon, she says against him. I think I missed you more than you miss me. He snorts and touches his lips to her hair. Ain't no way, Beth. Ain't no fucking way. There's coffee, she calls as he emerges from the bathroom later, dripping and cold, but clean and for what feels like the first time in forever. 
He makes a sound in the back of his throat that means, yes, thank you, and something else he's not sure of, all at once. She's found clothes for him. Dark jeans, some fancy-ass brand he never could have afforded in the old world. A black long sleeve vest and fleece-lined jacket, which she tells him is called The Sheep. And he chuckles, thinking that at least it's not bell-bottoms and platform boots, which is what he would have expected from Mr. and Mrs. Seventy Dude Bro. Either way, it's better clothes than he's seen in years, and they all fit well enough. Maybe a little loose, a little baggy. He's thinner than he was before. No more room to store those extra cookies. No more fleshy belly. She's standing by the window, looking across the courtyard, into the street, when he comes down the stairs. She's found clothes for herself, too. Dark skinny jeans that cling to her, a loose turquoise vest. A gray hoodie lies on the couch, and her bra, wet but still stained with Len's blood, is hanging over a cold radiator. He doesn't ask why she didn't raid some of the underwear here. If there's one thing Daryl Dixon knows about women, it's that the sizes on those things are confusing as all fuck. She sets some of the tins on a small side table, along with a cup of coffee. Black and bitter, and he wonders how she knew how he drinks it. He sits on the couch, eating some of the apples. The condensed milk was too much for him. Except for chocolate chip cookies, he never had much of a sweet tooth. Never developed a taste for it, on account of his father spending all their money on getting high. All things considered, he's surprised he ever developed a taste for anything, because the truth was, there never actually was much in the way of food around. Beth nurses a mug of tea in her hands, looking across the street. We need to get that walker stuck in the fence, she tells him. Do it later. He puts the apples on his side table. Come sit here. He pats the couch, and she turns from the window and shifts down next to him. You look different with no dirt on, she teases. He frowns. Yeah, drink your tea. Should check out the other houses, she says, curling her legs up under her. See if we can find anything useful. Place seems pretty untouched. Yeah, he agrees. She moves again, and he catches sight of her ankle, fading bruises, a slight swell she doesn't even seem to be aware of. How is it? He indicates her foot when she looks confused. Oh, it's, it's fine. Much better. He frowns, chewing on his thumb. She sighs, stretching her leg out and into his lap. Go on, then. Her ankle is so delicate that his hand almost goes right around it as he grips it. She wiggles her toes, now bright with some glimmering pink nail polish, and he gives her what he hopes is a mock-annoyed look. Trust Beth Green to ferret out a pot of nail polish in a world going to shit. It's hilarious, but he doesn't say anything. Instead, he's businesslike as he touches it, pulling her foot further into his lap and pushing the jeans up a smidgen so he can see properly trying not to let his fingertips trail too far up her leg. She's right. It really is much better now. He studies it, moves it gently, presses on it again, two fingers into the hollow above her heel. He chews on his bottom lip, eyes narrowing as he touches her toes. She breathes in sharply, and he wants to ask if it hurts, if she can tell whether it's the muscle or the bone, or maybe just bruises, if she's had any trouble walking, if she knows she needs to tell him if anything feels different. Bear traps are dangerous and dirty, and he doesn't want her to get an infection. Even if it's looking okay now, she needs to be careful. She has to be able to run, and even the slightest twinge could be a problem, and has she thought that maybe she should bandage? If I'd known you had a thing about ankles, I would have taken my socks off last night. Her voice isn't loud, but for a moment it's the only sound in the world. She's mainly confident, 
a slight tease in her tone. But even so, he can hear a waver in the words. And his hands go still on her. He might have been thinking about the latter part of last night more than he should. But he also hasn't forgotten how she cried into his shirt. How she held on to him, rattling and trembling against his chest. Neither is she, but he knows they're both covering now. Not ready to talk about Len and Joe, and before, and after, and the couch, and the kisses. It's not quite fake bravado, but it's not genuine either. It's a hint of something that could be, a promise come too early, a glimmer of the future. But it's still not quite right. Not quite now. There's a part of him that wishes she'd just forget it, stop bringing it up. Part of him rails against anything like the previous night happening again. But again, not very diligently. Regardless, his face feels hot, and he's sure she can see how ready his cheeks have gone. He glances over at her, trying to keep his expression serious, trying to employ some of that gruffness that's worked for him in the past. But she's smiling, and her eyes look almost turquoise, and despite himself, he feels his mouth quirk up on the one side, a half-grin, cautious, maybe even a little sly. She touches her neck, the skin that was under his lips only a few hours ago. He remembers how he'd half-covered her body with his, how despite all the clothes in the way, he'd been able to feel every curve the gentle press of her small breasts, the heat between her thighs. His face burns hotter, and she raises her eyebrows coyly. She ain't as easy to read as he thought, and she could just be faking, pretending. There's a part of him that hopes she is, that she's at least a tiny bit as jangly as he is, a tiny bit as thrown off, a tiny bit as scared. He pushes her foot out of his lap, good-naturedly. And check your own goddamn ankles from now on he says, picking up his pie apples. Four days later, he sits on the floor in the chill passageway outside her bedroom, crossbow close to his hand, head against the wall. They're in house number eight, the final house in this bizarre chain of suburban living. Beth insisted they went through the houses one at a time. We're both still bruised and battered, she said, her feet wheedling their way back into his lap his hand covering her ankles almost automatically, despite having pushed her away less than a minute before. We need to do it one thing at a time. So they'd taken it slow, very slow, frequently stopping for breaks, moving through a house or two a day, taking note of what was where, what they needed, and what they could salvage. Each house had been a bit wacky in its own way, if not the style and the furnishings, then the clothes they'd found, or the type of food that people kept on their shelves. One was full of books with surreal Mexican-themed prints on the walls. Another looked like the owner had been either a circus performer or a Liberace impersonator, with a collection of feather boas all the colors of the rainbow. Beth had laughed out loud when she came across a bunch of hundred-dollar bills tightly rolled up inside a plastic hair curler and hidden in a wicker basket under the bed. He hadn't. Because that's exactly the way his grandma had hidden her extra cash, too believing she was about to be robbed by them scoundrels Merle always hangs around. Come to think of it, she was probably right. But of all the houses, they never went back to the first one. This one makes them the most sad. It's full of doilies and frills and pictures of an old couple surrounded by children and grandchildren. It's a little bit House on the Prairie. It's a bit Little House on the Prairie, a bit the Waltons, even though it doesn't suit the house at all. Regardless, it feels like more of a home than any of the other places so far. There are memories here, deep and wonderful memories made by people he'll never know, 
having lives he'll never experience. It was also the only house harboring walkers. They tapped on the window outside and waited, and when nothing happened, he went inside, believing it to be empty. It wasn't. The smell of rot told him that. They found the previous owner standing in the kitchen, looking into the fading sunset. They were so still and so quiet that he thought they were already dead, that they were like that woman he'd helped Beth cover at the golf club of his nightmares. But they weren't. They snarled as they entered the kitchen, tottering on brittle bones, skin flaking from their faces. He thought they almost looked as if they could be holding hands, and once again he wondered if they retained the slightest shadows of memory. That Milton fellow. That Milton fellow, the governor's bitch or whatever he was, believed they did. Daryl wasn't sure. And it didn't stop him stabbing them both fast and efficiently before Beth was even in the room. But it did make him question if they saw, if they felt or if their only desire was all-consuming hunger for fresh meat. The last one, he decided. Definitely the last one. He cleared them out quickly, trying not to let Beth see. The man may not look like Herschel, but he was the right age, and he also had a big bushy beard, and he didn't want her eyes filling up with tears. Even so, he'd been surprised when she said they should stay the night, They'd been sleeping in the second house, the 70s man cave, since the first night. But she said they could do with a change, and she wanted to stay here. It seemed a strange choice, and then he realized that the furnishings probably reminded her of the old farmhouse she grew up in. Probably made her comfortable. They'd gone to bed at the same time, but as he had done every night so far, the minute he detected her breathing from down the hall, he eased himself off his mattress and moved to sit outside her door. It wasn't planned, wasn't decided on beforehand, but he found himself doing it almost out of force of habit. Stand guard over her, because he never wanted to let her out of his sight again. Knowing that she's there and safe meant more to him than the few hours of restless sleep he'd get anyway. He guesses that in the old world this would be considered creepy, but it's not the old world anymore, and he's beyond caring. It's Beth. It's always been Beth. He stretches, cracking his neck. The pop is unnaturally loud, and it echoes a little. He'd kill for a cigarette, but he just smoked his last one two days ago, when they were going through house number five, when the miserable drizzle had led up to give way to just plain freezing, icy cold temperatures. He doesn't like the cold, never has. Wasn't much of a fan of the heat, either, but at least he was used to that. But he's wondered often if cold isn't actually the answer to all of this. Not that the cold will kill the virus or anything, just that the walkers tend to slow down when the temperature plummets. Last winter, some of them even froze to the ground outside the prison, and he used them for target practice with Michonne. He grins, remembering how she couldn't even shoot them and they were absolutely still. The woman was useless with guns, probably worse with a crossbow, although he hadn't offered. She didn't get it, never would, although he's pretty sure katanas aren't his thing either. Each to their own. When Michonne eventually did an elegant twirl, more like a dancer than anything else, and lopped a head off, they chuckled. He feels a small twinge about it now. Killing them isn't supposed to be fun. Beth's right, of course. It ain't. But there ain't much fun to be had anymore. He pulls on the strap of the crossbow so that the arrows don't stick into his ass, and the metal scrapes loudly across the wooden floor. He hasn't really given himself time to think to dwell. 
He misses his people. Rick, Carl, Michonne, Maggie, Glenn, Carol. Thinking of Carol chokes him up a little, and he closes his eyes. You gotta stay who you are. Yeah, but do you? What if you were once a family man, an office drone, and then you turned into a psychopath? What if you were once a sheriff's deputy, and you turned into someone who'd shoot your best friend dead over a woman who never really wanted you in the first place? What if you were once a grieving mother, and then you killed innocent people for the greater good? The betrayal still smarts, and he tries to push it away. Feels bad for even thinking it. It ain't about him. It so ain't about him. There's a level on which he gets it, understands it. There's no level on which he likes it. And despite it all, he believes that's the same for Carol, too. Difference is, there's a shitload of levels between where he could have justified it and where she did. A shitload. He'd like to think it would have been different if it was one of them. If it was Glenn or Maggie or Carl. If it was Beth. But that makes him feel worse and starts bringing up all sorts of moral questions that his ma would have told him he was clever enough to answer, but he really wasn't. He didn't realize how complicated the apocalypse can make your life. And it sucks all kinds of balls. Daryl? He looks up. Beth stands in front of him, wiping the sleep from her eyes. Her hair is messy, and her sweatpants hang low on her hips. What are you doing? She asks, her voice a little low. A little cracked. Nothing. Frowning, she squats down in front of him, and he doesn't want to look at her, her bright hair, the naked flesh of her shoulder where the bruises are fading, the sharp hip and curve of her waist where her top is rutched up. She takes his hands in her own. He doesn't mind, doesn't flinch. It's comforting, this familiarity they have. He's found himself touching her a lot lately, more than necessary. A hand on her arm her shoulder, his knee against hers as they sat on the couches of the floor while they eat. Every now and then she would hug him too, usually when they found something good, like food or warm clothes or shoes in her size. The hugs are brief but not infrequent, and he wonders if this is her way of touching him, her way of showing him how she feels without the defiance she displayed that first night. He finds it comforting. It makes some of his rough edges feel smoother, and he finds the voices in his head stay quieter. They don't talk about it, this thing between them. They don't ever try and recreate that first night again. And he tells himself they ain't that familiar, but the truth is he ain't that confident. And the thought of kissing her again, while terrifying, is never far from his mind. He just hopes that when he touches her, she knows what it means. A thigh against hers. A hand on her hip. Daryl? She asks again. And even in the dark, with only a little cold moonlight for illumination, he can get lost in her eyes. Is this why you've been tired? Do you do this every night? She asks, and he looks at her feet and those silly pink nails, and he wants to ask why she isn't wearing socks, those tatty teddy ones she likes so much because they're thick and thermal. He nods and wishes he was anywhere and nowhere else at the same time. She wasn't meant to know he kept watch at night, was supposed to think he went to his own bed and stayed there. That was the decent thing to do. The good thing to do. The thing that people like Rick and Glenn would do. This, this here, sitting outside her room while she sleeps because he's so damn terrified that she'll be gone when he wakes up. That ain't decent. 
That's a little crazy and a little messed up and a host of other shit he doesn't want to think about. Daryl, you have to sleep. Her thumbs ghost across the back of his hands and his fingers tighten around her. Yeah, he says. Yeah. I'm serious, she says. She stands, tugging him with her, pulling him to his bedroom. He grabs the strap of the crossbow as he goes, but she takes it away from him and dumps it on a white-painted chest of drawers next to the bed. You must be exhausted, she says. He wants to say he's dead on his feet, but that seems inappropriate, so he frowns at her. You ain't gonna tuck me in, Beth, he tells her as she pushes him toward the bed with its brown feather duvet and fleece blanket. No, and I ain't gonna read you a bedtime story, either. The retort is a little sharper than he expected. Get in. It's that voice again, that stern voice of hers. The one that says, I might be five foot nothing and weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet, but I will beat your ass if I have to, so bring it, bitch. Bring it. He listens. Ain't no help for it. Nothing to be done. So he listens. And she walks to the other side of the bed and slides in next to him, and it's his turn to ask what she's doing. She looks at him across the pillows. She's not covered, and he can see the curve of her bosom through the thin material of her top, and he feels Merle stirring somewhere in his mind. Figure we'd done it before. Need to stop being so childish about it. He's about to answer, but she's matter-of-fact when she carries on. So, you want to be the big spoon or the little spoon? He snorts, and she smiles. Hope you don't snore, Green, he tells her. Don't you go stealing covers. She nods, mockingly stern. Aye, aye, Captain. And he wants to kiss her, but he can already hear Merle starting to laugh, so he lies back instead, concentrating on how he's comfortable for the first time in weeks. She watches him for a moment as he takes her hand under the covers, and then he sees her eyes slide closed, and soon she's breathing heavily. He likes the sound, so close, so intimate, and he wonders if he could just lie there all night listening to it. But he falls asleep minutes later, and he's the big spoon. They stand outside, surveying the houses. It's cold, and she's wrapped up in at least four layers, but she's still stamping her feet. He doesn't know what they're looking for, just that this was brought on when he swore up a motherfucking storm in the cold shower this morning. She asked if he knew how to get the gas working, and he said he could give it a shot because Tyrese had shown him a thing or two when they fixed up the prison. So she'd taken his hand and dragged him outside into the sharp wind, which turned her cheeks blotchy and left frosty droplets in her hair. She tells him this little complex looks like a Lego village, and he nods because he never had Lego as a child, and while he understands the principle, he doesn't understand the fuss. The kid Patrick back at the prison seemed to like it, though. Was always sitting around building spaceships and houses and shit. It makes him wonder if Beth, Maggie, and Sean had Lego when they were kids. If Herschel and Annette sat around watching their group of yours, mine, and ours playing with the little brightly colored blocks on a blanket on the ground. He wonders if little Beth had a big messy ponytail with a braid back then. The idea chokes him up a little. Too many reasons to go into but it makes him sad and happy at the same time. Which one? she asks. What do you mean? What do you mean? He's cold too and he can't feel the tip of his nose, and he really wants to get inside with her again. Which one do we stay in? We've been through them all. We know what we need. 
Now we have to figure out which one to stay in. Otherwise, you'll have to fix the gas for them all. Yeah, okay. He hasn't really given much thought to staying, not to anything beyond raiding these houses, really. Fact was, the idea scared him after what happened the last time he suggested they stay somewhere. He doesn't like the idea of repeating the same mistakes over and over again. On the other hand, there's Beth. And the prospect of staying here with her in a real house, with real heat, maybe even some lights if he can hold it all together with chicken wire and good intentions, doesn't seem like an opportunity that's going to come around every day. Okay, he says again. She blows on her hands as the wind whips at her hair. So which one? Don't matter. It does matter. Which one you like? I want to pick the right one. Beth, ain't like we got a mortgage. We can move if we don't like it. No, we can't. It has to be right. Okay. She looks around, eyes wide, brow furrowed, biting her bottom lip, which is already turning purple. He doesn't get why this is so important to her, but it is. So he goes with it, unless you stomp around in the cold, freezing her ass off as she does. She's hilarious in her own sweet way. Practical and logical, yet utterly breathtaking, and ignorant of it all. What's your favorite color? she asks all of a sudden. He debates saying green, just because he knows it will piss her off, and she looks so very serious. But he says blue, the color of her eyes. Okay, that's number seven. What do you mean blue is seven? She points to the cerulean flower box, and he nods. That's the one with the books and the strange art on the walls. The one that looked like it belonged to a young couple just starting out. Although why they decided to put down roots here is beyond him. Okay, number seven then. She takes a deep breath, and suddenly he can tell she's nervous. And he smiles, because it's kind of endearing. She walks up the steps to stand on the porch, and then turns to look at him, wind-blown hair framing her pale face. And she's beautiful. Welcome home, Mr. Dixon, she says, reaching for the doorknob. Hey, wait, he says, coming up behind her. And in a moment that he can only imagine later was complete and utter insanity, he slides his arms around her, hoisting her legs up, ignoring the still fresh pain in his shoulder. She laughs and holds on, linking her arms around his neck. What are you doing? she asks, who carries her into the house. And he knows nothing will ever be the same again. He grins down at her. Gotta be right, right? Safe up here with you, by dynamic symmetry. Chapter 3. Every Clash Brings Out a Warning. Mm. 
The next morning is the first time he finds her on the deck. Nothing he can identify wakes him. He simply wakes up all at once, sitting up, eyes wide and focused, looking around. It's not the first time he's come awake like this. It's a cultivated skill, and he could do it long before the turn. It's about survival, about self-defense. You're never safe, especially not when you sleep. When your old man staggers in at 3 in the a.m. after a bender of epic proportions and he's looking to visit some hurt on whoever is available for visiting. You can't afford grogginess. It's a luxury. You wake up before you know why, and you do what you have to do. You cower in a closet, under the bed. You lock yourself in the bathroom because it's the one door that has a lock on it. And it never works. All it does is buy you a few minutes. Maybe gives him a chance to calm down enough that he doesn't actually kill you this time. Then, later, you wake up in the dark, in the thick of the night, because you know something is wrong, even if you have no idea what it is. You know there's something out there, something moved, crunched through branches, rustled some leaves, or there's an unnatural absence of birdsong. Maybe not something most other people would hear, but it was there. You're alert enough to run, aim, shoot, kill. You can do this because if you can't, the people you love die. And that's a very simple question. It requires no thought whatsoever. You wake up when something is wrong, and later you actually think about what it was. He's sitting up in the gray dawn, sheets pulling around his waist, fully and vividly conscious, and Beth is gone. His first job whenever this happens is to not panic. When you panic, you might as well have stayed the fuck asleep for all the good you can do. He shoves himself up off the mattress and throws on his boots without bothering with a shirt. Reaches for the bow, but that's habit. He absolutely should not have the bow. This place is very remote, but it's not completely secure. There are no walls but the cliff, and it's by no means impossible that a walker or two, or even more, could have staggered up this far. But he has his knife. Couldn't put that away despite the danger. He can't be completely unarmed. And unless things are truly dire, it'll be enough. He somehow didn't think about her just... leaving. Why the fuck didn't he think of that? Why did he just assume she would stay put? The second she said she should be down with the other walkers in the town, warning bells should have clanged deafeningly in his head. If she got an idea like that, if she could focus enough to retain that logic... Stop! Beth? Nothing. Not that she would necessarily answer. Not that she would even necessarily hear him or understand what she was hearing. He hurries up the few stairs while trying not to hurry, trying not to clomp like a fucking Clydesdale against the wood, and checks bedrooms one, two, and three. Both bathrooms, closets, back downstairs, half bath near the foyer, pantry, more closets. She isn't here. She's gone. For the love of God, if you panic, you're no good to her at all. Back into the main room, and he sees it. The whole far wall of the room is glass, but to the side is the deck, and smaller panes of glass and sliding door leading out. The deck itself wasn't visible from where he slept. He never went close enough to her bed to see it. It never occurred to him to look. The door is very slightly open. The gap is so narrow that he didn't feel the air, or wasn't aware that he did. But maybe he did. Maybe that was why. Beth is on the deck, leaning against the railing. 
leaning over it, looking down. Her big t-shirt is rippling against her body, and her hair is too short to stream behind her like once it would have, but it rises around her head like a halo, glowing, lighting her up as the sun touches her. All he can do is stand there and look at her, and try to believe the sheer reality of her all over again. She's leaning, leaning over very far. He pulls in a huge breath and goes to the door, slides it the rest of the way open, steps out onto the deck. It's a nice deck, for a given value of nice, just like the rest of the place. It's big, but not ridiculously so, and there's a rectangle of chairs and a love seat and a fire pit in the center. Far to his right, there's a covered wooden box that he recognizes as an extremely elegantly designed hot tub. Before, he came out here only long enough to check that it was clear, and he didn't really notice what was over the railing, what was in front of him. Both the deck and the windows in the main room look out over the cliff, and down the whole mountain. The road they took up here is visible through the trees as a winding gray ribbon, and further down the roofs of the town lie nestled in more trees, a few places where it's clearer. McDonald's Arches, last defiant stand of Americana, a gas station sign. But the mountains, all in front of him, the Blue Ridge Mountains, misty and purple-blue in the first edges of true sunlight, carpeted in thick green, rolling and rising, and falling away again. Graceful in a way that bespeaks profound age. Only very old things are allowed to be beautiful like this. They earn it. It was here. He knew it was here. He put her in front of it, in part because he wanted her to see it. But he didn't really see it himself. Until now. She hasn't moved. Standing here in the wind with no shirt on. He's only dimly aware that he's shivering. Beth? And as he says her name, the wind brings him an answer, in the form of a splintering crash of something shattering against the rocks below. Beth. He moves up beside her, slow, nothing sudden. But she doesn't turn, doesn't look at him. She keeps her attention fixed firmly on what's beneath her, which is an almost sheer drop of at least 200 feet. He's not afraid of heights, not especially, though neither is he overly fond of them. But he looks down at that plunge of stone, and his stomach twists in on itself, and the world spins. So instead, he looks at her. She has something in her hand, and before he can see what it is, or stop her, she extends her arm and releases it. And just before it spins out of his clear line of sight, she sees that it's one of the glass sculptures from the bookshelf in the living room, tumbling end over end, glittering black like obsidian, and smashing itself into a dust cloud of shards against a jet in the rock about twenty feet down. He stares at this for a few seconds, at where it was, then up at her. Her hands are empty, and she's smiling, and she raises her head, and she sees him. She sees him completely, and she's bright with recognition. Daryl! Hi! He doesn't know what to make of this. She's not herself, not even close. He's not so stupid as to think that, to see that she's made a deeper foray into the world than he's yet gotten her to make on his own and think that everything is fine again. She still eats the breakfast he lays out for her, with no indication that she tastes it at all, 
and now and then her eyes slip out of focus. But she's here. She knows him. And when he asks her about the deck, she doesn't hesitate before answering him. I woke up. Couldn't get back to sleep. She shrugs and forks canned peach into her mouth, swallows it almost without bothering to chew. It's pretty out there. Yeah, it is. He watches her. Watches the movement of her hand, the tilt of her head, every minute twitch and shift of her facial muscles. Her. Her looking for her. Any sign of her beyond what he already has. What were you doing with the glass? What glass? Thing from the shelf. He's trying to sound like it's no big deal, like it's not a very extremely terrifyingly huge deal. Trying to sound conversational, keeping it light. Oh, that's fine. People toss shit down mountains all the time. Stuff you were dropping over the edge. Why'd you do that? Oh. She pauses, and as he watches, her eyes shift out of focus again, and she blanks. Goes away. Absence seizure, Edwards called it. They happen now. Her brain hiccuping. Not in themselves dangerous, provided they don't turn into anything else, but if they do. He's not a doctor, and he's an idiot, and he dragged her up a mountain. And he's still not getting on the bike and taking her home. She blinks and she's back. I don't know. I like watching him fall. I like watching him break. She smiles again, and it's small, and it should be sweet, but there's something wrong with it. He doesn't know what or why, but there is. It's pretty, too. Don't do it no more, he almost says. And then he remembers the promise he made to himself, and though she didn't know it, to her. If she's not hurting herself, if she's not trying to hurt him, he won't stop her. She gets to follow her bizarre little whims to whatever bizarre little end they lead her. Yeah, well, take it easy. We only got so much crap in here to throw off cliffs. She shrugs and returns to her peaches. So he decides he can risk it. She's been in the back bedroom reading all morning. He goes to her with the bow over her shoulder, and when she hears his boots on the hardwood, she turns. The secret garden again. He recognizes it without having to see the title. Gotta go to town. She cocks her head, brows slightly knitted, and that's when he knows he fucked up. Maybe not badly, but he underestimated her, or he underestimated the degree of her damage, or at least the ways in which it operates. Thought those different states into which she falls were different enough that she wouldn't remember between one and the next, and he fucked up, and he has to deal with it now. You're not taking me? He shrugs. You fucking idiot. No need. Just going for a few things. You said you needed someone to watch your back. She shifts where she's sitting, facing him a little more directly. Her expression hasn't changed, nor has her even light tone, but he looks at the hand gripping the book, and it's shaking. Knuckles white, fingers hooked, ready to claw and scratch. You said you'd feel better. You fucking idiot. Ain't that bad. I'll be all right. She looks at him for a long moment. He can't read her at all, and he can't tell if it's because she's hiding from him or because there's nothing there to read. But her grip hasn't loosened. He wonders if she's breaking her fingernails. He shouldn't go. He shouldn't. But she seems... If he leaves her for an hour... 
If he leaves her for an hour and he comes back and instead of glass it's her body broken on the rocks, her bones splintered and skull shattered, and her blood smears and spatters and pools of black paint across the cliff face. It would make the rest of his life very simple. What little of it there would be. If she's going to do it, she'll find a way. Abruptly, she smiles. It's not wide, but it's there, and he doesn't see any indication that it's forced or faked. Her hand is loosened. She is, if not his Beth, as close as he's probably going to get right now. All right, she says, and turns her attention back to her book. Be careful. All right. An hour. She can survive that long without him. They both can. He's almost wrong. They all got good at estimating the danger in any given place, and they did so quickly. Had to. It was that or die. It couldn't just be about the walkers you saw. It had to be about the ones you weren't seeing, because those were the ones that always killed you. By definition, you didn't know for a fact that they were there, nor did you necessarily know where they were, but you could look at the space, the terrain, the layout, count the visible walkers and how they were dispersed, and draw conclusions from that. You could get a general idea of what you might be up against. You could very well be wrong, it could very well cost you, but it was, and is, better than blundering around praying you haven't lethally fucked up by being there at all. They only passed through town on the way up, but he saw almost nothing that concerned him, very little in terms of real destruction. Nothing burned out too badly, a few places down side streets where it looked like there had been fires, and while the McDonald's arches still stand, the McDonald's itself is a blackened half-frame, but so much of the rest of it seemed intact. That meant there hadn't been many people to fuck it up when everything well and truly went to shit. Hadn't been many people to do the damage out of panic, or stupid greed, or rage, or despair. Only a couple bodies on the sidewalks, desiccated and picked over by carrion hunters, and only a few bodies means there weren't many people to do the dying. Plenty of people die in their homes, he's seen that, mostly from opting out. But only a few slow, stupid walkers is another good sign. This place is a gold mine. A treasure. Or it could be. There are so many things to hate about the situation he's plunged them into. But this is a bright spot, and he's going to cling to it until he has no more reason to do so. He hits a pharmacy. Broken front windows, but not looted too badly. These were people who had specific items in mind, found them, and took them, and took their leave. There's aspirin, vitamins, and the back is still fairly well stocked with antibiotics. He takes everything he reasonably can. He can come back for more if he has to. There's Xanax. Clonopin. He takes some of both, and he despises that he's doing so. But really? He's not sure Beth is the only one who might need them. Antibacterial soap toothpaste. People are stupid about that last. They never realize that teeth will become a thing after the apocalypse, and they never think about it. They never think about abscesses. They never think about what it's like to die that way. Simple lack of imagination has probably killed more people than walkers in this world. Out of the pharmacy and past cute antique and gift shops, and toward the convenience and tiny grocery store he spotted on the way. Door unlocked and no broken windows, God, he can't believe this place actually exists 20 minutes away from where they're based. 
Someone went through here as well, scattered things around, but they didn't take too much. And he moves through the aisles, packed down, piling in jerky, tuna fish, beans, chili, powdered lemonade, more fruit and vegetables, peanut butter and jelly, and a couple cans of soda. Jesus. And he skids to a halt in the candy aisle. She told him. Once by the fire after the shack burned, when things started getting better, when they were stupid and wistful and talked about the foods they missed most. He missed barbecue ribs slathered in sauce, as much grease as possible, and bones to gnaw on like a dog. He missed corn on the cob. He missed chicken nuggets where the chicken was totally fake, and he missed pie of all kinds. He missed gummy worms, a holdover from childhood. She missed cake, any kind of cake. She would be a cake person, there are two kinds of people in the world, and ice cream, and her mom's chicken salad and bacon and spaghetti and meatballs. Herschel made the meatballs himself, and she and Maggie and Sean all helped, even though it wasn't necessary. She missed pie, too. They talked about pie for a while. He favored cherry, and she liked coconut cream, and they argued the various merits of both. She said she loved M&Ms. She loved the blue ones best. He told her she was crazy. She told him she didn't care what he thought, and he fully believed she didn't, and he thought that was just fine. There's a jumbo bag of M&Ms on the floor right in front of him. He bends and scoops it up, packs it. He goes out the rear, and that's his mistake. He's not incautious. That's not the problem. It's just stupid, cruel luck. He steps out onto a stoop and into a fenced-in lot containing dumpsters and some wooden pallets and an ancient truck and a pile of half-eaten bodies and about 30 walkers. He's taking this in, bow up, his gut dropping toward his boots and adrenaline already pounding through him, but that practiced veneer of icy calm has descended over his mind, and he's about to thrust himself back through the door when one lunges at him from behind the dumpster beside him, hissing, and he swings instinctively aside and brains it with the limb of the bow. And the door swings shut. He fumbles behind him for the handle. It doesn't budge. It locked after him. Okay, so... This is a thing now. Something happened. He has no idea what, and he has no time to figure it out, but something happened here at some point in the probably distant past. Someone did something to bring about this state of affairs, and as thirty walkers turn in his direction and start staggering eagerly toward him, Oh, hey! Oh my god, we were wondering if anyone would come. This is great! He curses their name and the names of their ancestors and the names of their descendants unto the third generation if the assholes have any. Hanging strings of decay and sun gleaming dully off exposed bone and impossibly damp flesh and rolling cloudy eyes and teeth, lots and lots of teeth, and the fence to his left where the bodies are is blocked by a solid wall of them and the fence to his right might be reachable, but he can see the gate there is secured by a chain almost the width of his wrist. And directly ahead of him, the brick wall and gently slanted roof of the next building over and another dumpster. Might be enough. Might. That's all he has. You fuck this up, she dies. You know that. If she doesn't starve first or opt out, she will eventually wander down here, looking for her kin. And that's exactly what they'll make her into if they don't just rip her apart. He smashes in the skulls of the two closest to him, kicks the third back into the side, opens a gap, and throws the bow onto his back. Sprints. He's carrying a bit of a load, which he should just drop fucking to hell, and he's not the fastest runner, 
He's always been more about distance. He can and has run for hours at a stretch. He knows this is basically suicide, no matter what happens or how hard he tries, and as he barrels through the dead crowd, he feels hands groping for him, tearing at his shirt, the pack, a few grabbing onto and almost holding his hair, teeth clicking what seems like centimeters from his head, ears full of groans, lungs full of air so foul he almost wretches. He was used to the stench of them, still is, but this is worse somehow, so concentrated, and he's running through a wall of everything, running to her, for her, running to get back to her, and it feels like he has been running for hours, and this time he's not giving up. He's gonna save her. They still get to save people. He's gonna get it right. One of them closes its bone fingers on his shoulder, astonishingly strong for something that barely has muscles anymore, and yanks him backward, and he almost goes down. And he screams, wrenches, feels something in his arm wrench to and burst into fire, and his hands close on the edge of the dumpster, and he vaults himself up, scrabbling at the brick, jumping and seizing the edge of the gutter, and Jesus Christ, you're too heavy, you're too fucking heavy, no way it holds you! But his bones connect with the brick, and he heaves himself up, and his knees hit the roof, and is over. He crawls, clawing for air, rolling half onto his ass, and staring behind him. They can't jump and he doesn't think any of them can reach that high. He might be okay. He might be. His left arm is a series of sustained explosions. If he scratched, that was all for nothing. He doesn't check. He scrambles to the edge of the front of the building, tosses the pack over first, drops down, ignores the white stab of pain in his ankles and shins as he lands upright on the sidewalk. He can hear them, groaning and furiously disappointed, and rattling the chain link like angry prisoners in a riot, and he snatches the pack up again and hurls himself at the intersection where he left the bike. The roar of it is a blanket wrapping itself around his mind. Halfway up he stops dead, cuts the engine, gets off the bike, goes to the edge of the road, and throws up. It seems like it goes on for a while, though it can't be more than a few seconds, and by the time the heaving stops, his nose is burning, eyes streaming with tears, and he staggers a couple of yards away, arm bursting into fresh yells and crouches, and swipes his hands over his face and thinks, simply, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? He's never reacted like this before. Never. He stomped their skulls in, gutted them, hacked off arms and legs, took their heads off with a fucking chain. She said they used to be people, and that was sweet, and it stabbed him right in the ventricles, and she was right. But they aren't people, and even if killing them isn't supposed to be fun, he stopped being bothered by it a long time ago. And he got used to the looming prospect of his own death right around the same time. Because he's going to die out here. Sometime. Someday. Every minute he remains alive is borrowed time. He knows that. Rick wasn't right, not the way he was talking, but he was right in a sense, that sense. They are the walking dead. He just about accepted it. He would walk into a situation like that, down there, deal with it, get out, let the adrenaline bleed out of him, move on. Not think about it anymore because you can't, because you have to put it away, or it kills you. Here. But he's shaking, and he can't stop, because he almost didn't make it back. He didn't think to drop the pack until it didn't really matter. He wasn't careless, but he could have been more careful. He was so focused on fucking M&Ms. 
she did this to him. She made him weak. He can't afford that. He shoves himself to his feet and goes back to the bike, pulls out the bottle of water he brought, rinses his mouth out. It doesn't help a whole lot, and he's spattered with rotting blood and brains and grime, but it's the best he can do. He lifts his arm, turns it, cranes his neck, bites his limbs to keep back the wince, even though there's no one to play stoic for. But he already knew it wasn't a scratch. He recognizes the deep, persistent burn of a damaged muscle. Or something else. Damaged, anyway. This whole thing is really not going very well. Back on the bike. Deep breath. Deep breath, you fucking pussy. You stupid piece of shit. You breathe. And you go the fuck back up there and you handle this. He does. First couple things, he does. Handling it is very much a work in progress, and its future, frankly, remains questionable. The house is quiet when he walks through the door, and he doesn't know yet whether or not to consider that a good thing. Probably there's no rule that applies there, nothing he can trust to hold consistent from situation to situation. There are any number of reasons why she wouldn't be making any noise. In fact, given how she's been, it would be weird if she was. Sighing, he moves through the foyer and into the main room, pack and crossbow combining to make a weight he honestly can't believe he's still carrying. The fire in his arm has died down to embers, but he's going to need painkillers. Fuck of a lot of painkillers. Best case, he strains something. Worst case, something is actually torn. Soft tissue injuries take forever to heal. This is probably just his life now. And he forgets it, because she's there. Sitting cross-legged on her mattress, partially turned toward the window and bent over something, like she was with the book, and he thinks it might be the book, but as he slows, stops, and looks at her, he sees that she's not holding her hands right to be reading. She looks like she's writing. Beth? He forgets that he must look awful, must smell awful, walk her and vomit, and sets down the pack and the bow and takes another step toward her. She doesn't look up, doesn't appear to be aware of him. But the way she's sitting, not those slumped shoulders, the subtle but fundamental lack of muscle tension that comes over her whenever she blanks out or slips away. She might not be aware of him, but she's very much aware of something, intent on it, hand moving. It clouded over about halfway back up, but she still glows. Beth, hey. He takes another step and pauses, watching her. I'm back brought you presents. She turns and looks up. She looks up, and like before, it's her, almost, awake and present and real. Thinking, even if her thoughts are broken and scattered and don't fit together anymore. A jumble of puzzle pieces from two or three different puzzles. Her eyes focus on him, and she smiles, small but there, undeniable, and his lungs simultaneously try to expel all the air inside them and fill themselves as full as possible. Hi, Daryl. She is writing. She's writing in a journal. Or that's what it looks like. Blank pages, anyway, and lined. A journal, some kind of day planner, whatever. She found it somewhere. She understood what it was for. She probably remembered that she used to have her own. Found a pen. Looked for a pen. And now she's... writing in it. Using it again. 
She burned hers. She burned it for their fires. That always bothered him so much. And he never told her. Never told her that part of him had wanted to tell her to stop. He closes the rest of the distance between them and crouches. Doing all right? Anything happen? Like what? I'm fine. She sounds bemused, unsure of why he would ask. You... Something snaps into increasing sharpness in her gaze. Her eyes widen a bit, and he realizes that when he came in, she saw him well enough to know he was there and to recognize him, but now she really sees him, and she sees the state he's in. And she's concerned. She's concerned. She's looking at him. She understands what she's seeing, and she's concerned about it. About him. Okay. Are you all right? I... Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't... He shrugs. He's covered in gut and blood and brain. Once that was just a normal day for them. Ran into a little trouble. Wasn't nothing. She wrinkles her nose. You don't smell very good. And now, I'll deal with it. Running water means showers. They'll be freezing, but they do exist. For the moment, he's just focused on fighting back his almost overwhelming joy. What you writing? I don't know. Just stuff. I see. He's expecting her to hesitate. To refuse, actually. He's not sure why. Hasn't exactly thought the assumption through. He just assumed. So he's essentially unprepared for what she does do, which is immediately hold the journal out to him. Open. Without a word. Or a discernible expression. She just now had one. A little vague, but it was there. First she was vaguely pleased to see him. Then she was vaguely concerned for him. And now she's just gone flat again. Not gone, but part of her has receded. Or perhaps, more accurately, her damage has swept back over her, like a tide subject to gravitational forces he hasn't yet identified. He looks at her for a second or two, then down at the journal in his hands. She always had very neat handwriting. Not fancy, not elegant. Neat, plain, but also graceful in a way he was never able to define, and which seems so much a part of her. It's not the kind of detail he recalls making a point of noticing. He probably never did make a point of it. That's just not how he is. He remembers. He watched that neat, graceful writing go up in literal smoke. What's on the pages he's looking at isn't neat. It isn't graceful. It's a scrawl, wandering and wobbling, paying no fealty to the lines, and written so hard that the pen is nearly ripped through the paper. It's the handwriting of a child only just beginning to learn how to form letters, just beginning to figure out how to make her hand and fingers perform this delicate task. And there's nothing about her thoughts, her feelings, what's happening, what she remembers happening. No element of internal narrative whatsoever. It's one very simple arrangement of letters, hurtling down the page like an avalanche. Beth Green, Beth Green, Beth Green, Beth Green, Beth Green, Beth Green, Beth Green. He bites down on the corner of his lip and he's quiet. He's not a doctor, not a shrink, vastly out of his element. But he knows what this is. He doesn't think you have to be either of the former in order to see it and understand. Her brain hiccups, blanks out. Here, it's grabbed onto something from before her world was blown apart, and it's circling it wildly, almost hysterically, 
clutching onto this single bright fragment and trying to drag it out into the world, where it's real. He's cold all over. But she's writing, and she knows her name, and she knows that she knows it, even though he's not sure she's aware of what she's been scratching across the pages. Some part of her is trying to fix itself. He looks up at her. She's sitting exactly as she was when he took his eyes off her, face impassive and gaze flat. But she's not gone. She's focused on him. She's there, and he thinks she still sees and hears. Might be able to process, even if she doesn't show it. Even if he can't tell. It's occurred to him, though he tries not to think about it too much, that a tiny, fully conscious part of her might be trapped behind her blank gaze, terrified, unable to reach or be reached, screaming for rescue. He holds the journal out to her and she takes it back, holds it loosely in her lap. Good sign, probably. You remember your name, Beth? Because this is something. She seems fixated on this on some level, so maybe it can be a point of entry. Your whole name. You remember what it is? She cocks her head a little, frowning very slightly, and hope flutters across his diaphragm. Can you tell me? Your middle name? She told him. Another by-the-fire conversation, moving into weird little confessions. Not any form of I-never, but merely a we've-been-together-this-long-and-I-hardly-know-you-so-let's-change-that kind of thing. Trading. Her full name for... whatever he wanted to tell her. After I-never, she wasn't going to make any specific demands. Wasn't going to put him any more on the spot than what he was comfortable with. He was so grateful to her for that. So desperately grateful. And he never found a way to say thank you. He told her about the first time he smoked a cigarette. He was six. Merle shoved one at him while three of Merle's more goonish friends stood around in faked encouragement. And Daryl took one drag and careened into a coughing fit so bad he almost puked while everyone else laughed their asses off. He told her this story with no shame and no trepidation. He was surprised by the absence of those things. Then he wasn't. Her name full name. He thought it was pretty. He didn't tell her so. Beth, come on. I know you know. He's forgotten himself, forgotten how he looks and smells and what he's spattered with, what happened, forgotten everything but her, this girl all lit up and breathing and alive in front of him, looking at him, and he could swear she's trying, could swear he sees it in her eyes. You told me. Tell me again. There's that odd snap in her again, like the teeth of gears slotting into place. She opens her mouth, and she's going to say it. He's going to have found that part of her, reached it, touched it just for a second, made contact. She opens her mouth, and her hands fly to it, and with cold determination she begins to bite at her own fingers. For a second he can't move. He's seen her do it, but he hasn't seen her do it like this. Not just her nails, but her teeth. No sign that she feels any pain or intends to stop until her hands are bloody stumps. She's trying to fucking eat herself, and he lunges, seizes her wrists, and drags them away from her face, blood already running down her chin, and the flesh on the fore and middle fingers of her right hand churned and torn. She's fighting him, but not with any anger, not even any frustration. She's fighting him with no emotion at all, fighting him calmly, fighting him like a machine whose basic function is being interrupted 
wrenching her forearms in his grip, twisting, bones grinding and popping, and fuck, she might actually break her fucking wrists trying to stop. He's not yelling, not barking, not growling. He's never heard himself sound like that. Solid, steel, quiet. There's no anger in it, because he feels none. But he does feel, and what he feels is relentless and terrible and pounding between his ears. And it makes him feel a thousand years old. And she stops. Or almost. She's not struggling anymore. She's trembling, still on the edge of violent, but he can't detect any more fight in it. She's just... She's not in control. So he has to be. Bit by bit, he loosens his grip, and as her trembling eases, bit by bit, he pulls her closer to him. She's still flat, but that doesn't mean she isn't scared. Somewhere. Just as scared as he is, if not more. Much, much more. Don't do that, he whispers. Loose now, stroking his thumb slowly up and down the knobs of her wrists. He's staring into her eyes, and she's staring back, and she does see him. She does. Her bloody mouth working, like she might still be about to speak, and somewhere behind those horrible, dead eyes... He's positive he sees that spark again. Please don't do that, girl. Please don't. She pulls in a breath. Huge. Her whole body seems to swell. Then it folds inward in a gust, and she lowers her head and slumps. Not limp, but she's well and truly gone now. Which might be for the best. He's numb. That's also for the best. Later, maybe... He can allow himself to react to this. He waits until he's sure she's not moving anymore. Then he releases her and goes to get the first aid kit. The bites in her fingers aren't actually as bad as he was afraid of. He had horrible visions of exposed bone. There isn't any. They bled a lot, as hand wounds tend to do. He cleans them and bandages them. Then he gently tips her head back and wipes the blood off her face. Her eyes are open, but glassy and completely unfocused, her pupils slightly dilated. He lays his free hand against her cheek for a moment, cups it. He doesn't think she can see him or feel what he's doing, and he doesn't imagine she can hear him. But maybe she can. Who knows? Maybe she always can. Your name is Bethany Ann, he murmurs. Bethany Ann Green. Remember that. I'm going to ask you again. He waits for another few seconds, holding her, watching her breathe, watching her slow, slow blinking. Then he lays her down, carefully, arranging her as comfortably as he can, and watches her for a few minutes more, watching every part of her, her hands, her fingers, looking for twitching, watching the rise and fall of her chest, timing the intervals, her mouth, her eyes, for any sign at all that she's coming back, of which there's none. She's still so bright. At last he hauls himself to his feet, gives her one more look, and heads upstairs. The shower is freezing. He stands under it until he can't feel anything anymore, watching the water circle the drain, brown to pink to clear. All white tile all around him. White like a hospital quite like a morgue. He can't do this. 
He doesn't know what else to do. When he comes back down, mostly dry and dressed in clothes, he guesses Count is almost sort of clean. She's sitting up and she's awake, and she seems to have at least partially re-entered herself, even if she doesn't intend to stay. She looks up at him when he comes to her, and crouches in front of her, looks down at her bandaged fingers, held awkwardly in her lap, and up at him again. She's apparently cognizant enough to be confused about what she's seeing. More than confused, in fact, her eyes are wide and lips slightly parted the way they always are when she's nervous and can't hide it. Not because of him. Not made nervous by him. He's pretty sure. What happened? You had an accident. He's not going to tell her. He's not sure how to tell her. It now seems like she does remember some things from period to period, but he hasn't seen any indication, nor did Edwards say, that she's conscious of the things she does to herself when she's at her worst. Or if she's at all conscious of it, she doesn't know what it means. It holds no significance for her one way or the other. She lifts her hand, cradles it against her chest. It hurts. I get you some stuff for it. Not positive how effective what he has will be, but it'll be something. And he needs something. The cold water calmed a little of the angry red throbbing in his arm, but he can feel it starting back up. And it's going to be much worse tomorrow. He's not sure yet how this is going to affect use of the bow. He hasn't checked. It could be a problem. Almost certainly will be. Right now, he frankly doesn't want to know how much of one. There's only so much he can take in such a compressed period of time. But he's still cold, is the thing. Still. When he spoke to her like he did, Stop! Some switch in him flipped off and another one flipped on, and now everything is at a distance. It's there, he can feel it, but it's removed from the dullness his core has become. It wasn't something he consciously intended to do. He just did it. You have to let yourself feel it. No, I do fucking not. It serves no purpose. It doesn't help either of them. He's doubtful he can maintain it for very long anyway. She's staring down at the bandage again, lifting her hand, turning it, her expression now oddly wondering. Why did you bother? He sighs and scrubs a hand down his face, hair hanging in his eyes, because he was bleeding everywhere. But it's pointless. She spreads her fingers and looks at him through them, one eye framed by the V of her middle and ring fingers. I'm just going to rot anyway. We're all going to rot away to nothing. We ain't. We are. She sighs and drops her hand, glances away and out at the low gathering clouds. I wish it would hurry up and happen. I want it to be done. I'm tired. I'm tired of walking. Her voice softens, fades, becomes little more than a breath slipping across clean white walls. I want it all to be over. He doesn't say anything. He watches her, studies her. What he can see of her face, the corner of her mouth, her slow blinking eyes. He's still cold, still dull, but everything he's keeping at bay is already pressing in on him. Sick, lurching exhaustion, heaviness, gravity increasing its hold on him tenfold. He's known since he began to understand some of the nature of her wounds that she was very possibly, very probably, suicidal, at least on some level, even if she never really made a concerted effort to go through with it. But that was an intellectual understanding. It was superficial. He knew, but he didn't know. Now he's faced with it, 
what amounts to an explicit statement that she's looking forward to not existing anymore, regardless of whether or not she believes she'll actually cease to exist. Beth, he says softly, and reaches for her. Because this is one of the few benefits of running low on fucks to give, the list of things you have to try to keep yourself from doing shrinks significantly. And he touched her before, pulled her close even if he didn't hold her, and she let him. She was mostly gone by then, but she let him. And he doesn't know that he's actually doing her any favors by not touching her. And he fucking needs to. She flinches, eyelids fluttering like she expects some kind of blow, but she doesn't pull away when he combs his fingers into her hair. God, so short, so much of it gone, how it might have tumbled over his hand, tangled around his knuckles. And when he cups the side of her head, she actually... She leans into it. Very, very slightly. She leans, pressure and warmth against his hand, and he forces air into and out of his lungs. You're not gonna rot. You ain't dead. You ain't. You're here. You're right here. So try. He waits for a few seconds, holding her, staring at her. She stares back, no longer flinching, no longer nervous, no longer with the same numb weariness that had seeped into her tone. She stares back and she's there, locked, locked onto him. That spark flaring for a fraction of a fraction of a second. He does see it. It is there. And she's gone again. Blank. Her head droops slightly, her eyes sliding out of focus. He watches her. He watches her for what seems like a good while, and the last of the color appears to seep out of everything. Eventually, he withdraws his hand and gets up, and turns away from her. Cold again. All over. At some point, he'll feel it. He'll let himself, if it doesn't devour him first. But she's gone, and he's cold, and once again he thinks that might actually be a best-case scenario. He goes to the pack and hauls it up onto his right shoulder, winces when the left one complains anyway, and he's almost to the kitchen when she speaks. Bethany Ann. He was cold. Now he freezes, limbs locked, gut a pit of ice, veins frost. He doesn't turn. He can't. Because what if he just imagined it? What if he turns back and it was in his head, something between a desperate fantasy and an even more desperate hallucination, and she's sitting slumped like a broken puppet, eyes glazed and jaw loose and hands limp and useless and chewed on her thighs? Bethany Ann, she says again, very soft. You said you were going to ask. You don't have to ask. Bethany Ann. Bethany Ann Green. God. Yeah, this has been something that has been really helpful this afternoon. Oh, I just needed a distraction, and at least when I do this, it requires most of my focus, so 
I'm not swinging back and forth between the oh my god moments of revelation that I've been having in between my bouts of numbness. And these were not particularly cheerful stories, I'm sorry. I mean, okay, the burn wasn't that bad, but all I mean safe up here with you is just awful, pretty much start to finish. But again, it was distraction. Yay. So this concludes part three of our reading series. Uh, I'm gonna try and do the next one at some point soon in at some point in early December, I think. Uh, in terms of the next episode of Keep Singing that is not part of our reading series, I'm not sure yet. I've been wanting to, and there have been um, there's been more than one request uh, to to do something with Molly again, which would be great. I, I had such a good time with that when we did it, and then you know life happened, and uh, I wasn't able to make it work, but really going to try and do that. What specifically we will discuss, I think, remains to be seen. But yes, I think that it is likely that the next thing will be that. Uh, something else that I'm considering doing at some point in the not-too-distant future, although you know what? It's dependent on a lot of things. While I try to keep this a Team Delusional, Team Defiance neutral space, uh, I clearly am on the team. So I think that it might be fun to have an all-TD episode at some point. Uh, obviously that would exclude people who aren't into that or don't want to hear it, and I completely sympathize and understand. But, you know, it's my podcast, and I did kind of want to talk about that at some point. So probably look for that at some point in the not-too-distant future as well. In the meantime, I'm going to get out of your hair. Some of you might have seen on Instagram that I bought a cake. It's all for me. It's my cake. It's my Armageddon cake. I'm going to go eat it. Probably not all of it, but I'm going to go eat a lot of it. Thank you so much for listening. You are the reason why I do this. And I hope it will not be too long before I speak to you again. Bye.